Welcome to Edwards Beyond the Test, a podcast that goes behind the scenes of the flight test mission at Edwards Air Force Base. I'm Don Waldman from the 412th Test Wing Public Affairs. Edwards Air Force Base is the second largest base in the U.S. Air Force. Located in the western Mojave Desert, the base encompasses more than 400,000 acres of land. The 412th Civil Engineering Group's Environmental Management Division has a responsibility to ensure that Edwards remains good stewards of this land in conjunction with the ongoing flight test mission. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Ms. Misty Hale-Stone from the Natural Resources Section of the Environmental Management Division here at Edwards. Misty, welcome and thanks so much for being here today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Well, Misty, you're a wildlife biologist here at Edwards, and you told me you'd been here since the spring of 2008. In the natural resources section where you work, there's a long list of responsibilities that you have there, and everyone is interesting and important. So why don't we just go ahead and break it all down and start with your role as a subject matter expert in the field biology section. What does that mean? Because natural resources, we're responsible for pretty much all the wildlife on the base, all the plants and animals. So being a subject matter expert, I have a background in wildlife biology and zoology and wildlife management and all that good stuff um, so that we can actually help advise the base on what to do in various situations that deals with wildlife of how best to continue our mission while also dealing with all the the wildlife on the base. So Misty, what are some of the animals that are found here on Edwards? Well, we run the gambit, despite what people think of uh, the Western Mojave Desert as being a pretty dead place. We actually have a lot of interesting animals and plants that live here. So we deal with everything from desert tortoises, which is probably the most popular um, because it's our only threatened species to birds. Um, We also deal with large mammals like coyotes and bobcats. Uh, We do reptiles um, like snakes and lizards. Uh, We also work sometimes with insects and different invertebrates. Uh, Like I said, it kind of runs the entire gambit. Now that's interesting. I didn't realize you would work with insects or invertebrates as well. Anything else that we may not be familiar with? There are probably lots of things that people aren't (laughs) familiar with, um, which I think we'll probably get some more detail in later in our discussions. But I think what comes as a surprise is not just the animals, but probably the plants as well. Our goal is to to keep intact habitat so that the, the wildlife can thrive. And that involves a lot of different components, including not just the animals and the plants, but we also look at things like waterways and how water flows through the system. We deal with soils and dust and how that might impact the wildlife. Uh, Even noise and commotion, all of that also has its own impact. So we look at a lot of different variables. So with that said, with such a wealth of wildlife here at Edwards, what are your efforts to help prevent conflicts with the wildlife, whether it be in base housing or in the work environment? Well, so that's something that we we typically call uh, the wildlife-urban interface is probably where we deal with those kinds of interactions the most. And those are just areas where there's a lot of people in a populated area that sits right next to wild spaces. 
And because animals and wildlife don't understand things like roads and signs and barriers, they just kind of go wherever um, there are resources. We help uh, guide the base in different policies and practices of how to interact with our environment the most effective way, avoiding things like safety issues, um, as well as making sure we're good stewards of the, the other living beings that inhabit uh, our environment. Misty, can you tell us what are some examples of that? We deal with everything from, I have a rattlesnake in my building, we'll go and, and pick it up and move it to a more safe environment. We deal with these residents when there are bobcats and coyotes walking around the neighborhood, so things that they can do around their residence to, to decrease uh, the chances of wildlife wanting to, to hang out and stick around and potentially cause a problem with their pets um, or, you know, just being able to go out and enjoy their backyards. We also look at things like birds nesting on equipment. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk to equipment managers about how often they need to inspect stuff and the legal ramifications of doing various activities and things like that. So, you know, Misty, one of the most interesting places, well, there are many, but one on Edwards is the Paiute Ponds. It's located on the southwestern corner of the base and it's managed by the Natural Resources Section. A lot of people may not know about Paiute Ponds. Can you tell us about it? Certainly. So, as you mentioned, Paiute Ponds is a, is a wetland system. It does sit on the very southwestern corner of our base. It is actually the second largest freshwater wetland system in all of LA County, or I'm sorry, it's the largest freshwater um, wetland system in all of LA County. It encompasses a lot of different uh, habitats uh, that support a lot of different types of wildlife. And so uh, you will see everything from different species of birds that we get during the, the big migrations because we are part of the Pacific Flyway to the regular desert inhabitants that you would see such as bobcats and rabbits and lizards and snakes. The, uh, the wetlands is actually part of a natural wetland system that has since been modified starting probably in about the 1950s and the system was built up so that it could actually hold back some of the inputs that the local sanitation district was releasing into the tail end of Armagosa Creek which goes onto the base and then onto the onto Roseman Dry Lake bed. And so they built up some infrastructure so that we could continue to utilize the lake bed for various missions that we have here in Edwards Air Force Base. And because we created this artificial system, um, we do a lot of management to make sure that it continues to work. The area, besides being a really important wildlife area, is also a really great recreational area. So we do have people that go out and bird and hike around and look at all the really great natural resources out there. We also support a waterfowl hunting season out there that people can join in. And the area is not just for, for base residents. We also open it up to the public um, as long as they get a background check and go through all the our proper security protocols. Um, but it is one of the very 
few resources that were able to um, allow the general public to come and enjoy and to um, participate in. So, Misty, you mentioned the hunting program, which um, I was going to talk to you about next. How how do they go about participating in that? Is there a season? Um, can you tell us more about it? Certainly. So the base actually has three different hunting areas. Um, we have two upland game hunting areas as well as the one waterfall hunting area. And people can participate in the hunting program by following our base instruction. We do have one specifically geared toward hunting and fishing. People are required to follow all of the state and normal federal laws and regulations as far as getting permits and their the correct training for the different types of hunting that they're performing. We also have a online platform that provides people with additional information, including uh, the ability to buy the base permits. So we do have a base permit for both hunting and fishing um, that people are required to purchase. And this online platform also has uh, our base instruction of the additional uh, regulations that we enforce here and a lot of other resources. It's really great um, in case you, you just want some, some general information about the, the different opportunities that we have on the base. That sounds really great. Can you give us that address, the web address for that location? Certainly. So the web address is https colon backslash backslash edwards.isportsman.net. Fantastic. You know, Misty, you mentioned about fishing. We have Paiute Ponds and Branch Memorial Park, and that's a pond located near the Southgate entry point. Is fishing permitted at both of those locations? It is not. Paiute Ponds, as well as being fed by, by natural water flows, gets the majority of its water from the local sanitation district that keeps water out there all year round. Um, because it is treated effluent, uh, there are certain water quality specifications that they have to meet. And our agreement is that we will not stock those ponds with fish um, because it requires a higher level of water quality testing um, that we didn't want to put regulatory burdens on them. Branch Pond, however, uh, we do stock regularly with various kinds of fish, um, and it is open for, for people to go fishing. Just like with our hunting program, we do ask that or require that people follow the, the state laws and regulations as well as our instruction that has additional restrictions in it. Well, another recreational program that we have at Edwards is the off-road vehicle areas. Misty, tell us about that. So we have three off-road vehicle areas here on the base. Um, area one is actually managed by a, a club here on the base, and we don't have a whole lot of involvement in. And it's an actual um, setup where they've created jumps and dips and stuff for people to go and race and do tricks and stuff like that on. The other two areas, we have area two, which is our largest off-road vehicle area, and it sits uh, behind housing and to the west of the landfill. And in that area, it's, it's a multi-purpose area. You can do everything from running, walking, hiking, to um, riding horses to riding mountain bikes and ATVs and uh, big trucks if you want. That area 
does have these multiple uses, but some areas are tend to be used for, for more of one type of recreation or another. Um, we do require that everybody that uses that area goes through um, a desert tortoise briefing. It's a requirement since we, it is a really large area that does have desert tortoises in it. So we have specific uh, rules and information we wanna go over with people before they utilize that area. We also have Area 3, which exists just north of the, the NASA complex, um, and that is mainly just for non-motorized vehicles. So you can mountain bike out there as well as run, jog, and hike, um, but no motorized vehicles. And you also need a desert tortoise briefing to utilize that area as well because, again, we do have desert tortoises out there. That sounds like fun. Lots of fun out there for everybody on base. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity to, to get outside and really enjoy um, the natural areas that we have here at Edwards Air Force Base. You know, we are the second largest Air Force Base um, in the nation, and most of that area is what we would consider buffer area. So it's not actually utilized for direct impact mission capabilities, but more for just the natural environment and creating those extra spaces so that we can accomplish the mission without um, interference with nearby communities. So Misty, are there any other recreational programs the Natural Resources section manages or oversees? So the main ones that we oversee. Um, so like I said, it's it's the hunting, the fishing, um, the off-road vehicle areas, and uh, access over to, to Paiute Ponds are the main things that, that we are involved in. While some may not see it, the desert that Edwards calls home is filled with life. How do you protect that life while we simultaneously conduct the flight test mission of the 412th Test Wing? We'll talk about that in a moment. Welcome back to Edwards Beyond the Test. Our guest today is wildlife biologist Miss Misty Hailstone from the Natural Resources Section of the Environmental Management Division. So Misty, when some people look at our dry lake beds, which by the way is historically why we're here, they don't see it as an ecosystem filled with life. But in fact, aren't the lake beds and the entire base a place of amazing life as well as being a fragile ecosystem? It is. So the lake beds, most people look at it and it's just this dry, flat playa. You know, you think that it's just like blacktop. If you've ever actually walked on a playa, it's when it's dry, at least it's super hard and it creates this really interesting surface. Um, but what's really cool about uh, most dry lake beds in the West is that when they're wet, they are just full of life and activity. And this is kind of a, a residual effect from back in the Pleistocene when this entire area used to be a, a forested habitat. And what you see from our lake beds today is actually the residuals of a Pleistocene era lake called Lake Thompson. And as the climate changed and things started to warm and the habitat started to change, that lake started to recede. And then based on the topography is how we get the, the smaller portions that we still see today. Back when the, the land was a little bit more flavor, or favorable uh, as far as the climate is concerned, there was a lot of interesting life that lived in the lake beds. And this included a lot of different crustaceans and a lot of different invertebrates. 
So Misty, fast forward to the modern day. You know, when our lake beds are holding rainwater, isn't there a big explosion of life that hatches out? When the lake beds are actually full for, for a prolonged period of time, these organisms will, will hatch out and come to life during that short activity period that, that water remains in the, in the lake beds. Um, we have, oh goodness, I think it's, we're up to six or seven different types of fairy shrimp, which uh, if people ever grew sea monkeys when they were kids, that's what fairy shrimp are. Um, they come in lots of different species, different sizes, um, different types of feeding habit, habits as well. It's interesting. There's carnivorous ones as well as uh, herbivorous ones and the whole, like I said, gambit. We have these little shrimp that look like mini clams. We have some that look like mini horseshoe crabs that are predators. Like I said, it's just full of life. Um, these things hatch out when it's when there's prolonged wet periods and they are able to have their entire life cycle in like just a few weeks if the environment is unfavorable up to a couple of months if the environment's really favorable and it's actually really important because it becomes a really important uh, food source for for migrating birds when they're coming through in the spring to to go back to, to their spring nesting habitats. But in addition to, to the shrimp and the life in there, the, not just that they move around, but they also help keep the lake bed um, in its intact form. So over time and due to subsidence from using up all the groundwater, uh, locally there used to be a lot of farms in the early 1900s and the water table was so high because of that um, Pleistocene era lake that people didn't have to dig very deep. They only had to dig, you know, less than 100 feet and they were hitting water. And so back in the early 1900s, there was a lot of ranching and going on in this area and they were pumping out a lot of water in order to, to feed fields of things like alfalfa. As the community started to grow and more and more of that water started being used, um, it was used faster than the water could recharge, and it caused a lot of land subsidence. And we can see those impacts in and around the valley even today. Um, if you go to certain portions of the lake bed, we have these really large cracks, and we have areas that have started to sink. And that is because that bubble that the water used to, to fill underneath the ground, keeping it up, has disappeared, and those air pockets occasionally start to collapse. But these, these shrimp and these different clams um, and things that you're seeing alive in these lake beds, um, not only are they living their life, but they also tend to secrete uh, certain chemicals off of their body, kind of like a, a gel almost. And it's a, a layer of different kinds of carbohydrates and things like that, which actually helps form a, a sticky substance that helps keep these particles in place. So the lake beds are actually there, form this beautiful, nice, flat, super hard surface through a bunch of different complex um, things that are working together. So these shrimp, algae, and other microorganisms are forming this great biotic complex. It's kind of helping keep that intact. But then you've also got the um, physical and 
chemical processes of the soil itself, which uh, creates different kinds of um, cohesion based on the, the chemical components and the physical attributes of having clay versus um, loam or sandy soils. So the lake beds are mostly clay. And so it, like I said, it helps just maintain this really great surface that's really good for different kinds of missions like landing the space shuttle. And who knew fairy shrimp had such a big role in the surface of our lake beds? That's fascinating. Yeah, they're very cool and very underappreciated. Well, I'll, I'll look at them differently from now on, I promise. You know, in relation to what you've just described, basically, how does the Edwards mission continue and move forward? I mean, how do we conduct our mission while still being good stewards of this land? Well, I kind of look at um, them being surprisingly compatible. So we have a lot of DOD land, especially in the West. The federal entities own most of the land. um, And for that, we, we are required to be good stewards of the land. The DOD is really unique in that even though we have a fairly large footprint, the, the area that we physically impact tends to be pretty small. Like I was saying earlier, we have a lot of buffer space. But because security is so important to the mission, we have all this buffer space that we keep so many people out, which means that a lot of our lands are fairly intact and we have some of the, the best quality habitat in a lot of surrounding areas for this reason, because we fence it off and we don't allow people to to have a lot of impact on our land because we need that buffer space around. Like I said, we we tend to try to concentrate a lot of our our physical um, impact to the land to to fairly concentrated smaller areas. And we we work really well with the various units that have different missions here on the base of, you know, how how do they conduct their mission while minimizing the impact that they have on the environment as much as possible. And it ends up being a mutual benefit because the the more intact that we can keep the land, the longer it's gonna be usable. It's gonna create that natural environment that provides real world examples for, for us to conduct missions and to help keep our air clean and our water drinkable and the wildlife, you know, intact that helps keep uh, invasive species in check or that, you know, prevents fire, wildfires, and that just keeps an overall healthy ecosystem. So Misty, speaking of habitat, one of the areas you work on is the desert habitat restoration. What, what is that all about? So even though we do aim to, to keep our impact on the land as minimal as possible, we still do impact the land. It can be large areas, it can be tiny areas, it can be widespread or super concentrated. When we are done utilizing a piece of land for a specific activity, if you just left it there, it would probably remain barren for a really long time. Um, Even though the the desert is a really interesting, unique um, habitat that able to withstand a bunch of different extremities from lack of water to super intense sunlight, it's not very good at repairing itself after a major disturbance. So most of our nutrients exist within the the first inch of soil. And as soon as that gets um, either 
scraped away or super compacted, it's really hard for, for those nutrients to get back. Um, we, a lot of our plants, they don't, we don't have a lot of biomass, so it's not constantly shedding those nutrients into the ground. Um, and when things are, are compacted, the, the water will run off and it doesn't sink into the soil. So there's a, a lot of different components that just makes it really unfavorable to regenerate a habitat from scratch if it's been severely impacted. So one of the things that, that we do, as along with a lot of other natural resources managers, is in these areas that have been impacted that we know we're not going to reuse, at least for any foreseeable future, we want to go in and try to restore that area back to the natural habitat um, to, the, to the best extent we can. So that again, we, we have that atmosphere that's really good um, for our mission to continue. So we work with a lot of other organizations and other bases and stuff to, to try to figure out the best ways of doing that because it's not an easy process. It's a really long, arduous process that can um, create a lot of frustrations because it doesn't always work. It requires a lot of components to come together and uh, work seamlessly, which rarely ever happens. And so one of the things that, that we work on is trying to figure out how best to go about doing that. And it does require us to, to engage with a lot of different partners um, and a lot of different uh, scientists and things that, you know, have the know-how of how we can do this and we're really on the leading edge of <laughs> what works and what doesn't work and new information's coming out all the time um, that we need to keep on top of in order to, to make sure that we're using our resources as wisely as possible. Because if we don't do anything, you know, it could take hundreds of years for, for the land to recover itself. Misty, earlier we talked about the desert tortoise here at Edwards and it's considered a threatened species. Well, tell us what's being done to help increase their numbers and, and provide them as well a safe place to live. Right. Well, desert tortoises are um, considered one of those keystone species. It's, a, it's an indicator of how the entire ecosystem is doing. Um, when you see declines in an animal like that, it's not good news for, for the ecosystem as a whole. Um, desert tortoises not only are they just cool and unique in of themselves, but they're also um, habitat engineers. And what I mean by that is tortoises create a lot of holes. They spend over 90% of their lives underground. And because they are such prolific hole diggers, they, they provide a lot of homes for other desert creatures. Um, just about every animal that you would see out in the desert spends at least some portion of their life underground, um, whether it's to have their babies or to escape from the heat or the cold. But everybody uses some sort of underground cavern at some point of their life. Desert tortoises are declining, um, unfortunately, at a pretty high rate that's building over time. They're not an easy species to to recover. And the reason for that is they're a very long-lived species. So tortoises in the wilds have been known to consistently survive up to, to 60 or more years. They don't become sexually mature until they're uh, somewhere between 10 and 12 usually. 
depending on nutrition and growth rates. From any particular nest, usually only about one in every hundred uh, hatchlings survive to adulthood. And they just, they have a lot against them. They're in a habitat that, that isn't super friendly. So um, there's not always consistent water or food resources. And, but they're really good at utilizing what they can find. But on top of living in an environment that's already kind of extreme that they've learned to adapt to, they also have to deal with now people coming in and urbanization that destroys their food resources as well as their homes. People also bring in uh, sub subsidies that helps their predators. So what I mean by that is people by feeding wild animals or leaving their trash cans open or having roadkill and open landfills provides another food resources for certain predators to take advantage of. So one of the main predators of desert tortoise are the common raven. And the raven right now, um, it's estimated to be about 10,000 times uh, the population that it should be for our area. And again, the reason for that is there's so much food that they can have much higher densities than what naturally should occur. Um, and so now that there's more ravens, they have a higher impact on tortoises, particularly the, the young tortoises that where their shells don't harden until um, they're about eight years old. They, they peck right through the shell and can eat them pretty readily. On top of that, they also deal with disease. So um, they think it originated probably with the pet trade and different turtles. They carry um, a microplasma. It's a, it's a type of microorganism that can cause disease similar to the flu. And it can wipe out entire populations of desert tortoises. And then you also have to add on to that climate change. <laughs> so they're dealing with a lot of stress. What we do to help them and what the base is really great at, like I said, we provide them kind of a safe space. Uh, we have a lot of buffer area in and around our mission that's protected from off-road vehicle people that are running them over or from um, lots of urbanization that's building up and destroying their homes. Um, we're able to help provide this, this extra space for them, a safe space for them. We do a lot of education here on the base to try to help people realize that um, the actions that they do have consequences, such as, you know, feeding that, that cute bird on, in your backyard might seem really cool and fun, but you're interrupting this ecosystem that's, you know, very well balanced and not something that you really want to do. On top of that, we've also done some, some interesting programs that we've worked with uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, the U.S. Geological Society, most recently with the San Diego Zoo, um, doing a program that's called Head Starting, uh, where we actually take female tortoises uh, when they're about to lay eggs and put them in pens that are protected from predators. They, they let the the females had, uh, lay their eggs and then put the females back out into the wild to live their life and then provide them basically a safe space for the babies to, to hatch out and to grow up to a certain size um, that they have a higher likelihood of surviving once released back into the wild. So far, you know, we're still, we're working out uh, what works and what doesn't work. Different programs are happening regionally, um, trying to figure out, you know, 
how do we maximize this process to, to have the best success for, for the tortoises and help with their recovery, even if it's just a matter of learning more about the species and the juveniles and what they need in order to, to survive and, and grow. And that's interesting, too, to, to learn that external programs, external from Edwards, are coming in, such as the San Diego Zoo. Yeah, the, the San Diego Zoo uh, recently got some funding from a different project to, to do some research with Head Starting. Um, we are only a part of their current reset research program. Part of it is on the, the eastern Mojave Desert. We were able to to, to work with them in a cooperative agreement of using our facilities and our animals to help them conduct their, their research. And so we're pretty, we're pretty excited about that. Well, no doubt. That's neat. You know, speaking of the desert tortoise, Misty, isn't there a program on base where residents in the housing areas can adopt one while they live here? Yeah, we, we do have um, our own desert tortoise adoption program, specifically for, for residents on the base that live here. Uh, it's part of our educational program of just getting people to learn and appreciate how just amazing these creatures happen to be. Um, these tortoises are all captive tortoises. They, they don't ever get released back out into the wilds. They originated from what I've, my understanding is most of them originated from uh, when we had some really large projects going on on the base where we had to clear tortoises out of an area. Uh, this was, I think, back in the late 90s. Um, and we didn't have, at that point, a good understanding of what relocation would, would do to these tortoises. And uh, our regulators allowed us to, to keep them for, for educational purposes. And so um, these tortoises are... are our agreement is these tortoises are not allowed to leave the base, um, that they are here for education. So as people PCS, they, they go to a, a new family so that they can also get some enjoyment out of having a pet turtle or tortoise. For, for people that uh, are not on the base and want to know how amazing it is to have a desert tortoise as a pet, the state of California actually has a club called the Turtle and Tortoise Club. And you can go through them and adopt a tortoise. And the, it's really unique because it's one of the only programs um, or only species where you're actually allowed to have a threatened or endangered species as a pet. And there's really good reasons for this. So um, as we discussed earlier, tortoises have a really long life. And tortoises weren't a listed species until the, the late 90s. They were first listed in 1996, or no. They were first listed in the, the early 90s. And uh, people already had them as pets. And the problem with releasing pet tortoises is pet tortoises have that disease I was talking about earlier, the mycoplasma. And if that gets out into wild tortoises, like I said, it can can kill off a large number. Your your pet tortoise, however, you know, you know, they can survive with this disease without too much trouble. That's very fascinating. You know, you were speaking about education just a moment ago. Tell us about the Environmental Management's education program. What's being offered? We used to have a really big program um, when I first started here at the Environmental Management Office. 
um, or we did a lot of outreach events and things like that. Since our staffing has slimmed down since then, uh, we don't do as much as we used to. However, we do participate in a lot of different functions, um, especially when it comes to, to kids and the base and even the local communities. Mostly people request our participation and we will provide um, educational materials and we have snakes in our office that we use for education. We sometimes will bring a desert tortoise out um, and really try to, to engage people about what our wildlife is around here and um, again how to interact with them in a manner that you know keeps the animals safe as well as keeps the people safe. So we participate in the, the newcomers fairs We'll do um, outside the base, we'll do like uh, career fairs, like Salute to Youth. We've done Earth Days. We've gone out to, to local community events when they've asked us to do presentations. We've gone to our base schools, including the homeschooling, um, to, to do these presentations. And it's not just the natural resources. Um, I speak from my own experience because I'm very involved in our, our educational program, but we also have cultural resources um, and they'll talk about the, the history of the base as well as the prehistoric history of the base. We have, you know, compliance areas where they'll talk about air quality and water quality and um, hazardous waste and, you know, how to, again, keep a a safe and healthy environment. Um, we also have the restoration program in the environmental office that deals with old chemical spills that we're still tracking and cleaning up. So we have a wealth of knowledge in our office. You know, Misty, the natural resources section that you're in, you work closely with the cultural resource section at times. Does this have to do with the discoveries of artifacts? I know we have so much history on the land surrounded that Edwards sits on and surrounds the base. There's a lot of artifacts out there. There definitely is. And I would say that um, our natural resources section actually works with quite a few different entities on the base. And that mostly has to do with the fact that wild animals and plants and things that we look at and um, study and protect puts us out into those far-flung areas of the base that most people don't ever get to. And because we're out on the ground really looking at things, we, we come across all kinds of things. Um, and that includes, like you were saying, different different artifacts and historical sites and refuse piles and stuff like that. Um, and so we do try to work really closely um, because the impacts to the natural resources can also be impacts to the cultural resources. So we do work pretty closely with them. But we also work with safety. We'll come across, you know, big holes in the ground <laughs> that probably need to be taken care of. We've worked with um, EOD because we'll come across UXO occasionally and weird spots on the base. Um, different ha hazards. We work with security forces because we'll find fence breaks and intrusions and stuff like that. So we, we really do our best to, to integrate and work with a lot of different organizations on the base. Well, Misty, you've covered so much of what's going on at environmental management, but is there anything else you'd like to add? It's 
really a privilege for us to, to be here on the base and to, to help manage the, the natural resources and the land, you know, and the end of the day, even though, you know, this is DOD land, the DOD holds the lands in trust for, for the people. So we really want to make sure that we're doing our due diligence and as much as we can to, to keep the, the land as intact and as healthy as possible. So it's very cool working here. Um, we get the opportunity to, to look at and work with a lot of different really cool and interesting things. So it's a real privilege. Well, Misty, thanks so much for your time and sharing your story with us today. But before I let you go, and you kind of just touched on it, can you tell us what it means to you to work here at Edwards at the center of the aerospace testing universe? <laughs> well, I think that it's, it's a lot of what I just said. Um, like I said, you know, we, we really are in this unique environment uh, where we've got a lot of space and areas that are, are well protected. And we get to do that while making sure that uh, we are still able to accomplish the, the mission that we have to do that, you know, keeps our country safe and helps us progress uh, in doing the, the missions that we're really set out here to do. And so it's really great being able to, to integrate those two things because they're not mutually exclusive. You know, the healthier the land is, the healthier the environment is, it just helps the, the mission to, to be more successful. And that's, that's really what we're here for. Many thanks to today's guest, Ms. Misty Hailstone, for taking time out to share her story and taking us Beyond the Test. Thanks to all for joining us. I'm Dawn Waldman for Edwards Beyond the Test.